0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, please. We'll be reading from verses 69 through 75. While you're turning there, I just to let you know that there's a lot of people that are coming into town this week for the conference that we're putting on, and some of you will be in attendance um, no doubt, and I think there's over 100 churches represented. People from most provinces, most provinces will be represented. At least three different countries. Um, pastor coming in from Germany with one of his elders, and so there's a lot of people that are coming in from out of town. And if you have the opportunity to show hospitality to someone in your home, um, that would be a great blessing to them, and um, that would be. Wonderful way to show Christian love. Um, Wednesday evening, Pastor Tim Stevens will be preaching to the youth at the youth group, and then next Sunday, so a week from today, Pastor James Coates will be preaching here from this pulpit. And so there'll be there's lots of activity uh, in the next little while. And if you do see someone in church who you don't know, um, they might be from far away, and it would be good and warm and kind to have them in your home. But let's look at uh, Matthew 26, verse 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And we went out to the entrance, and another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. Father, we pray and uh, we ask that you would help us, give us strength. Lord, help us to focus our attention upon Jesus, our Savior. May he be brought much honor today. Would sinners be saved? Would your church please uh, be strengthened, dear God? And we pray that you would guide uh, what is preached, that your spirit would empower what is preached and what is heard. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in the Passion Week leading up the week leading up to the death of Christ really at this point in the gospel of Matthew his death is within hours so it's it's coming come through the last supper come through the garden of gethsemane where Jesus yielded his will humanly speaking to God then you have the arrest of Christ in gethsemane where he's betrayed by that scoundrel Judas with a kiss and then the trial before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin thinks they're putting him on trial, and really they are on trial before God as he pronounces Christ, pronounces judgment upon them. So we've, as we've gone through this chapter 26, we've progressively um, kept a close eye on the descent of the apostle Peter. And Peter has been going downhill. As of last week, he was falling and today he falls hard and so this text today is on the fall of the Apostle Peter the 19th century commentator Albert Barnes said the fall of Peter is one of the most melancholy instances of depravity ever committed in our world melancholy instance of depravity and as you look at this melancholy instance of depravity It proves, I think it helps prove, it substantiates the veracity of the Bible. The Bible's true. If you're going to write a book and you're going to include yourself as a character in the book as you write history, and if you're going to write a book and you're going to include some of your best friends in the book, I highly doubt that you would highlight and spend so much time discussing their melancholy instances of depravity. But the reason that the apostles feel so comfortable discussing these things is because the Bible is not written to make heroes out of the apostles. The Bible is is written to exalt Jesus Christ. And it's through the apostles' failures, especially Peter's failure right here, that much is made of Jesus. And so I think that substantiates, helps substantiate the claims that the Bible is true. And there's many lessons for us in this. And so I hope you pay attention to the lessons that shows the deceitfulness of our own hearts. If Peter can be deceived this bad, certainly you can. Certainly I can. Christians often think, now pay attention to this, I think this is a very important lesson. Christians often think that if they dabble in a little bit of sin, they're in control. But really, that's all a deception. Once you start to dabble in sin, you're not in control. And so so what you think is like you're in the driver's seat and you're keeping the sin in the passenger seat. And, you know, just kind of motoring along and you're in control and you can enjoy your sin at will. But really, the trick of sin is that it, it, it makes you think you're in the driver's seat. But by the time you've invited sin in, sin's already... Bound you hand and foot and thrown you in a trunk, in the trunk, and sin has the driver's seat, and sin's taking you for a ride where you don't know where you're going to go, and it's going to be a bad place. That's sin. Always. And if you think you're in control of your sin, you have already been deceived. Sin is deceitful, it'll take you for a ride. Another thing this teaches us is that, you're, is that sin is, is private before it's public. Sin starts in the heart and sin grows out of the heart privately before it's flagrantly displayed to the public. You look out at some Christians who flagrantly sin and people that you would have never thought sin fall flat on their faces and sin and bring shame to themselves, their families, their church and most importantly shame to the Lord and you say how could such a thing happen? How could it happen? It started in private before it became public. Starts in the heart There's something discontent or dissatisfied in the heart that draws the heart towards forbidden paths And you go down this terrible dark road You didn't realize how quickly sin could take you down this dark road. And you didn't know how fast and and where how far sin would go But once you get on that ride The only way you're getting off that ride is the grace of God. The only way you're getting off that ride is the grace of God. You you actually lose all power. You've given up all power to sin. You become its slave. It becomes your master. And the only way off that ride is the grace of God. You're going to see that today with Peter. The only way he can pull out of this is the grace of God. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Since private before it's public, sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go, faster than you ever wanted to get there. And today what I'm going to do is I will document Peter's sin. I'm going to go back through chapter 26 to review how progressively we've arrived at the place that we've arrived at. And then I'm going to go all the way to his great fall where he weeps bitterly. Because he realizes what he has done. And then I'm going to show you the mercy of God in restoring him. The mercy of God in exposing him, and the mercy of God in restoring him. We look today at Peter's spiritual pride. We look today at Peter's prayerlessness. We look at Peter's halfway Christianity. Those are things we've already discussed. I'm going to go over them quickly, but for the sake of review, I'm going to go over them. And then we're going to see Peter's denial, then Peter's denial under oath. Then Peter's denial under oath with a curse, and then Christ's mercy in exposing his sin. Very important stuff. So follow along today. But pride leads to problems. The the moment you, the Bible actually says pride comes before the fall. It doesn't say pride comes before the fall except in such and such and such a situation. It just says pride comes before the fall. So the minute the spiritual pride t- starts to take u- root, the minute the pride takes root, you can, you can guarantee there's going to be a fall. And it could be pretty hard. And, and the thing is with sin is it's like gravity. The longer you're falling, the faster you go. You can't escape this gravitational pull to the earth. It's like you're on the top of it. You say, I'm going to dabble with a little, a little bit of sin. It's like you're on a... The top of a slide that reaches to the heavens. And then the the bottom of the slide is in hell. And when you start to dabble with the sin, that slide is greased. And you've jumped on the slide. And it's going straight to hell. And the only way off is the mercy, the grace, and kindness of God. It's not something to dabble with and play around with. It's more serious than a heart attack. I think I'd rather let my children play with rattlesnakes than sin. Is that serious? Okay? And what we have today, I want, to, I want you to look first off at Peter's spiritual pride. At Peter's spiritual pride. After the Last Supper, Jesus warned that they'd fall away. So we're, we're reviewing now. We're going back through 26, chapter 26, and we're going to watch Peter's descent So after the Last Supper, Jesus warned that they'd fall away in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter divisively sets himself apart from others with his spiritual bravado in verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. See how he sets himself apart from the others. He's he's looking at their sin, but not at his sin. He's he's doubting them more than he's doubting himself. And so he's in dangerous territory, and and he he thinks that he is superior than the other apostles, than the other disciples. This is where it's starting to kind of penetrate his heart, this pride that's coming out. In verse 34, Jesus warns again, he says, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter very quickly and very adamantly doubts and disbelieves and contradicts Christ, essentially calling Christ a liar at this point. Verse 35. He says, Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not, I will not deny you. See? This is spiritual pride. He's exalted himself above the other apostles. He's doubted the word of Christ. He's contradicted the word of Christ. Look, if, if God gives you 100 words and you only disbelieve one of those 100 words, that's pride. If Jesus tells you 10,000 things and you only disbelieve one of those things, that's pride. Peter's pride is showing itself in his disbelief of what Christ said. Christ's warnings about his heart. If you're sitting today and you say, well, my heart's not that bad. This is pride. Like, no, 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 your heart's that bad and it's actually worse because words can't describe how dark and corrupt the human heart is. We have no under, we cannot even comprehend, we can't wrap our minds around how corrupt our hearts are, put in the right situation at the right time, or rather the wrong situation at the wrong time, you would be surprised what kind of putrid pus you could squeeze right out of your heart. The human heart is a terrible thing. And there's spiritual pride in Peter, and he, he doesn't take heed to it. And, and the spiritual pride in Peter leads to Peter, Peter's prayerlessness. Jesus leads them into Gethsemane, and he instructs them to pray because, his temp, because the temptation is coming in verse 41. Jesus says in Gethsemane, watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And what do they do? Jesus admonishes them, pray, you're, you're, you're weak. And what, is, what do they do? Well, what they do is they sleep. Peter sleeps. He should be praying, but he's sleeping. And so what happens is Peter's pride leads to Peter's prayerlessness, Prayer, listen, prayerlessness is pride. When you're prayerless, it's because you're prideful. You think, I don't need God for this. I got this. Prayerlessness is pride. And so Peter's spiritual pride leads to Peter's prayerlessness. How's your prayer life? Do you pray? Do you pray God helps you? Do you pray God gives you the the power to resist sin? Do you pray for your own sanctification? Because you're wholly dependent upon God. Parents, do you pray that God gives you wisdom in raising your children? you need him? There's a spiritual pride, then there's a prayerlessness. And the spiritual pride, the prayerlessness, it weakens Peter. And we see now his halfway Christianity, which is no Christianity, all start coming out. His pride leads to prayerlessness, and his prayerlessness leads to cowardice. He's weakened to the state of cowardice now. This strong fisherman that's weathered the storms on the seas, he's been with Jesus for three years now, he's seen all the miracles, he's heard all the sermons, and as Jesus was taken into his show trial before the Sanhedrin, verse 58 tells us, Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. This was a halfway Christianity. He he wanted wanted to be close enough to Jesus to still feel like he's a disciple. But he didn't want to be so close to Jesus that he had to identify him with him. That he had to be associated with him. He wants enough Christianity to feel like a Christian at this point, but not enough Christianity to actually cost him something. I've warned about this. i warned about this last week. Are you a halfway Christian? What are you dabbling with? It's, it's enough for me to be associated with Jesus in, in a very shallow type of Christian. But do you want to go all the way for Jesus? Well, Peter doesn't want to go all the way to Jesus. He doesn't want to cost him anything. He just wants to feel like a Christian at this point. And that leads him into bad company. Look at what verse 58 says. As far as the courtyard, so he stayed away from Jesus. Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Who's he sitting with? He's sitting with the servants of Satan. He's not sitting with Christ. He's sitting with the servants of Satan. And so this leads him into bad company, where he'd actually spend time with the servants of Satan and be identified with Jesus Christ. And at this point, Peter has so weakened spiritually that he becomes like water. What does water do? Water molds itself to the environment it finds itself in. If you put water in a cup, it molds itself to the shape of the cup. But water in a bowl it mold itself to the shape of the bowl very quickly. And now Peter is like water. He's molding himself to the situation because he's found himself in bad company. The bad company is more comfortable for him than the good company because the good company is going to cost him something. And now he's starting to act like the bad company. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. It's true all the time. And so Peter is finding himself in bad company. And this leads to his fall. His pridefulness leads to his prayerfulness, which leads to his cowardice, which leads to his bad company, and that leads to his fall. His complete fall occurs with a series of denials. So let's spend some time right now going through this series of denials. There's a series of denials that we have to walk through to see how far Peter falls. But as you come to this sermon, I really hope that you're humbled before God to think how weak you are spiritually and how much you need the grace of God. You don't even want to come near the garment stained with unclean flesh. You want to be so far from sin. Because the minute you engage with it, it takes you. And then what it does is it sucks the spiritual vitality right out of you. And the only way to get off of that slide, to pull out of that gravitational pull to absolute destruction is the grace of God. Why don't you start going down that road? Peter is a step removed from the presence of Christ as we look at his first denial here. Verse 69, back to today's text now, having reviewed what led up to it. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, so he's removed himself from Jesus, okay, he's with his his new friends, bad company, removed from Christ, and this is leading up to his first denial, and a servant girl makes a statement in verse 69, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. Her, Her statement suggests that she had seen Jesus, with Peter, or Peter with Jesus. Perhaps she had been amongst the mob of people that that confronted Jesus and arrested him in Gethsemane. Maybe that's where she saw Peter with Jesus. My suspicion is, is that she saw Peter with Jesus when Jesus is preaching in the temple and exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and she saw his disciples around him, and she knew that she just happens to recognize Peter right there in that moment and says, hey, that's the guy that was with him just a few days ago preaching, and I, I recognize him. And so she goes up to him, and she says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. She's referred to in our text, she did not give it a name, she's referred to as a servant girl. The Greek text actually emphasizes that she's a singular servant girl. And the word itself, servant girl, or the phrase itself, servant girl, is, as one commentator said, diminutive. Meaning it's, it's showing that she's a person of low status. She's easy to dismiss. She has no power. And this is essentially communicating to us dismissively that she's just one servant girl. And there should be a contrast that goes on in your mind. Jesus yesterday was keeping it together or last time, he was keeping it together when he was facing all these men of power before the Sanhedrin. The high priest is interrogating him. The high priest has all the other men on the Sanhedrin there. They're watching the show trial go down, and Jesus is keeping it all together. These are men of power. Peter cracks when he's questioned by a girl. Not just a girl, a servant girl. So this is exposing how weak he is in this moment. And how strong Jesus is, by the way. A servant girl. Really? You know, that's what she was. And this is what makes him crack. And then so he denies his relationship to Christ in verse 70. After she makes that statement. He denies his relationship to Christ. Verse 70, he says, he, it says, He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. The word deny there points back to Matthew 10, verse 33, where Jesus says, If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who's in heaven. But notice how Peter answers her. He doesn't say no, he just feigns confusion. He fakes that he doesn't really understand. He fakes that he's confused. So look again at verse 70. I do not know what you mean. You see? He, he's not saying, I don't know him. He's what Matthew Henry said. He was sh- It's a shuffling answer. He tries to shuffle out of the situation. You ever do this? You're asked a direct answer or direct question, and instead of giving a direct answer, you say, I don't know. And you... You know, but you say, I don't know. Well, why do you say, I don't know? Because you want to shuffle your way out of the answer. Well, let me say, if you know and you say, I don't know, that's still a lie. That's still a lie. And so shuffling answers are still lies. So now he's getting deeper into it. It's the pride. It's the prayerlessness. It's the distance from Christ. And then it's the bad company. And now it's a lie. That's his first denial. I don't know what you're talking about. It's actually kind of light compared to what's to come. He's still getting deeper into sin. This is how sin goes. You start with it, a little bit of sin, and you go down, 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 and you just accelerate to the point where you're out of control. That's Peter's first denial. Let's let's look at Peter's second denial it's worse. It's not just the shuffling answer where he pretends he doesn't know what's being talked about. He actually, under oath, renounces his faith. He descends into sin because, or his sin, his descent into sin becomes worse because he goes from the shuffling answer to, which is worse than a white lie, to a blatant lie under oath, which is perjury, and commits perjury in order to deny his faith. And this, by the way, is stemming from the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man is a deadly snare. The fear of man is no excuse for sin. This is Peter's excuse for sin, is he was afraid. He was afraid of a servant girl, but he was still afraid. And what does he do? The fear of man is a trap that's set for him, as the Bible says. It's a deadly snare, and the fear of man is a trap. He steps in the trap, and it springs. That's it. So the fear of man is no excuse for sin. If you want to know a man that could find an excuse for sin, it's Peter. Well, he steps into this terrible trap. And as scared as he is, he removes himself even further from Christ. In verse 71, says, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. So, you see what he's doing? He's keeping his distance from Jesus. He's confronted. Confronted with, Je- with you, you. You were with him. You, you know him. Oh, that's too much for him. And so what does the fear do now? Now it pushes him further away from Christ. The, the fear of man drives him further from Christ. You see how the sin is compounding? I hope you understand where this is going. He's at a place where he is so weakened spiritually, the world is now spinning around him, and he doesn't even know it. He went out to the entrance, verse 71, and he's confronted by another girl because now the news is spreading through the busy courtyard. Look at what it says. And he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, okay, this is the second denial that's coming up, brace yourself, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So maybe the, servant, the second servant girl heard from the first servant girl, I think that's probably likely, but either way, the news is now spreading because it's no longer contained. It's not the first servant girl, it's the first servant girl and the second servant girl, and the second servant girl just told a crowd of people, the bystanders. So you can't get away from the truth, can you? The truth will find you. And Peter's thinking there's a way out. Look at this. Is, this is Peter's fig leaf. This is Peter hiding behind a bush, and the voice of God is coming out to Peter. Peter, where art thou? That's what's happening here. You think you can hide from sin? You think you can hide from God? You think you can hide from being found out? Your sin will find you out, always. You cannot hide, and it will come, and it will point its finger at you and accuse you. So now it's spreading even more. It's becoming public. But he denies it again, this time voluntarily taking an oath. Look at verse 17, or 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. See how serious that is? He's now a liar and a perjurer. But think about how terrible this answer is. Not only is he a liar and a perjurer, not only has he become defected to complete cowardice, prayerless and prideful, but he says, I do not know this man. He's saying he's not a Christian. I don't know Christ. Christ? Who's that? He's now denied the faith, and not only has he denied the faith, he's denied it under oath, essentially swore on a stack of Bibles and denied the faith. Or maybe he swore by the temple, or maybe he swore by God himself. I don't know how he was bound by this oath, but under oath, somehow, he has now managed to deny the faith. Now, now remember where he started. It was an instance of spiritual pride. I'll never deny Jesus. And now look at where he is. Under oath, not just denying Jesus, but denying his faith and renouncing his faith altogether under oath. He's gone from pride to full-throated denial of the faith because two little servant girls questioned him. See how terrible of a thing pride is? You think you're in control of your sin? You think you can play around with your sin? You think, you, you think the, the sin is a little cat that you can play around with? You think that thing's a little cat? No, that thing's a lion. And when you're least expecting, its, its claws will come out and it'll rip your face off. And, it'll, and all of a sudden, you'll become the play toy that the lion's playing around with and throwing in the air. It's not a cute little cat. Don't you think that? That's the second denial. Now let's look at the third denial. The first denial was a shuffling of the truth. The second denial was a renunciation of his faith in Jesus Christ and his knowledge of Christ under oath. The third denial is a denial that occurs under oath with a curse. It gets even more extreme now. People start wagging their tongues, and I suspect lots are looking at Peter, pointing, and the rumors are flying. You know, I, I could see Peter in the crowd, and people whispering to one another, and people pointing their fingers, and, and eyes are on him, because it's really spreading. It's like if, if it could have gone viral in that crowd, it went viral, right? Things are lighting up. It's now taken to social media. And everyone's talking about Peter. Verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are—you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Do you see? This is, so, so what's happened is the bystanders are talking amongst themselves. The servant girls have spoken with the bystanders. There's now a mob around Peter, and, they, and, and they're looking for evidence that he's with Christ, that he's one of Christ. And the first evidence that they hold on to is his accent. He's a Galilean. The Galilean was the backwater part of Judea, And so he had a Galilean drawl, and it was plain as day. You listen to the guy talk, you know he's a Galilean. And so now they found some evidence that they can hold on to. Look, you're telling us a story, man. You're trying to spin your own press. But your accent's a dead giveaway. It betrays you. Keep this in mind. God's people, even when they're deep in sin with their failures, they will not mask the fact that they are traitors and that they are Christians. And you'll pay worse for your denial of Christ than you, had to, than you would have paid if you had to just embraced him. But you can't mask who you are as a Christian. Peter couldn't do it. You won't be able to do it either. So you might as well just own the fact that you're Christian. But denial here's the denial the bystanders are talking, they're pointing at him, and they're pointing out his accent, and they're now looking for evidence. And yeah, this is they're all talking. He now doesn't make just an oath, but he invokes a curse in verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, the ESV, if you have an English Standard Version of the Bible, the words, the two words on himself occur in your text. He began to invoke a curse on himself. That would occur in the ESV. However, those two words, on himself, do not occur in the Greek text. This is an interpretive insertion by the the ESV interpreters, the translators. The New American Standard is proper in that it catches that, and that little phrase is not included. It's not in the Greek text. So it it should say, then he began to invoke a curse and to swear the ESV says, basically what the ESV is saying, it's, ESV is, is interpreting it, may I be damned, I don't know him. May I be damned if I know him. But the, the, the Greek text doesn't specify plainly who is the one that Peter is cursing. The ESV inserts that, but the Greek text, this is an important point, because this is going somewhere. This is going to show you how bad it gets for Peter. And a Greek scholar from the University of Wales, R.T. France, along with several other scholars, makes a very convincing exegetical argument that here Peter is not calling down a curse on himself. He is anathematizing Christ. He's cursing Christ. And this is, and he makes the argument based on how the verb is structured and how the verb is used. But even if you remove that exegetical argument from the from what i'm saying here even if you remove that the context makes sense because peter has now become so like the crowd that it's very likely that he's joining the choir of those people who are calling down curses on jesus christ he wants to prove that he's one of the people in the courtyard and he's not a christian That's how bad he fell. Peter so becomes like the crowd that it's probable that he joins the blasphemy. Now, I'm not going to say that that's definitive, because I think Matthew somehow leads it open-ended, but I am going to say that it's possible, and I think it's even suggestive in the text. Do you see how far sin will take you? Pride comes before the fall, the fall. And Peter descends from spiritual pride to this. Don't ever think that a little bit of sin is okay, because the little bit of sin always takes the driver's seat and takes you down a road you would have never guessed you'd be on and it takes you faster. That you never would have guessed you would have been going. Every time. Sin is not something to be played with. So, Peter has gone from just in hours being at the Lord's table with Christ to now potentially participating in blasphemy and for sure under oath saying that he's not a Christian. That's bad. This is a very dark moment, but I want you to see Christ's mercy. Maybe some of you are right there. You're there right now, and you feel trapped, and you've ended up in a place that you never thought you would get. You thought, "Oh, I think this will be fine. I'm in control. I'm just going to handle this." And instead of you handling the sin, the sin's manhandled you, and and you just you've you, you don't know how to get out. But I want you to see Christ's mercy to Peter. Look at verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. Again, I don't think that word himself, it's not in the Greek. Then he began to invoke a curse and a swear. I, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Do you see that phrase, Immediately. Immediately. God let him go so far, and immediately he wakes him up, and he snaps out of it. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said in chapter 26, verse 34, and so this is what what, what happens here. Immediately the rooster crowed, in verse 75, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept, Bitterly, the rooster crowing cut through him with a sharper edge than any a prophet sermon did. You ever heard a sermon that just wrecked you? And you've left in the sermon feeling so guilty and so ashamed for your sin? Well, this rooster crowing was that times a thousand. This was a sermon that came from that rooster. And, and his reaction in verse 75, and he went out and wept bitterly. The, the bitterness does not refer to the sound of the weeping, but to the shame in his heart. This is a man so broken that he weeps as if he's lost his only son and worse. And... and It says in verse 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. That's the last time Peter's name is is mentioned in the book of Matthew. That's it. The last time he's mentioned is in Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Jesus was right. He was wrong. And he wept bitterly. Matthew 28, verse 16, it says the 11 regathered on the mountain in Galilee. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says that Peter preached a sermon on Pentecost, a sermon so strong and powerful that 3,000 sinners were saved, so we know that he's restored. God restored him. There's an ancient legend in the history of the church that says Peter wept every time he heard a rooster crow for the rest of his life. Whether that's true or not, I think I could believe it because all of a sudden he felt the shock of his sin. And it just, it, it sliced his soul. He, he didn't even realize what he was getting into and into one thing after another thing after and then all of a sudden the velocity of the fall is just like, and there's no getting out of it. Like there's no, there's no string he can pull to get the parachute to come out because he doesn't even know he's falling. But Jesus is so merciful to Peter. He let him fall only so far, and then immediately he rescued him. Immediately. As John Trapp said, Jesus would not let him drown in his sin, although he let him become drenched in the violent waves of his sin. But he would not let him be drowned. Have you been caught in sin? You've been caught in sin? You feel ashamed? You're full of guilt, embarrassment? I mean, maybe even people know about your sin. Maybe others have found out about your sin. Look at Peter. YOU WANT TO TALK ABOUT OTHER PEOPLE FINDING OUT ABOUT HIS SIN. I'M TALKING ABOUT HIS SIN IN FRONT OF 600 PEOPLE RIGHT NOW. AND THIS IS GOING TO GO ON YOUTUBE. AND NOT ONLY IS THIS GOING TO GO ON YOUTUBE, BUT PEOPLE HAVE BEEN TALKING ABOUT HIS SIN NOW FOR 2,000 YEARS. SO YOU WANT TO TALK ABOUT PEOPLE FINDING OUT ABOUT YOUR SIN. THE SHAME OF PETER IS THE GRACE OF GOD. THIS IS THE MERCY OF GOD TOWARDS THIS MAN. Peter was caught. The entire world knows it's right here. But his shame brings him to weeping. And his weeping is the weeping of repentance. Maybe you've been caught in your sin. Well, you ought to weep like Peter and be thankful that you're weeping. Because the Bible says, as Jesus taught us very early on in the gospel of Matthew, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This man is mourning. And he's mourning for his sin against God. Mostly against God. His sin against is Christ. Look, the ones that get caught in their sin are the ones that God loves. The ones that never get caught are the Judases. They're the ones that go headlong into hell. But it's the ones that get caught those are the ones that God loves. And he brings it to light so that they can feel the full weight of their shame and of their guilt. They can feel the full burden upon their back and they have nowhere else to go but to run to Jesus to find healing for their shame and pardon for their sins. Amen. Nowhere else. And that's all that Peter can do. That sermon from that rooster cut him. When Jesus points out your sin, it's because he loves you. When Jesus exposes your rebellion, it's because he loves you. It's so that you'll look to him for grace and forgiveness. And then he uses the shame and the guilt and the misery of that experience for your own sanctification... Look, Peter didn't stay there weeping bitterly. It is noted, he regathered with Jesus on the mountain of Galilee, and he preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people were saved. And he wrote two books in the New Testament. And he went on to plant churches. When Jesus points out our sin, it's because he loves us. Do you know the love of Christ through the rebuke and sting and pain that comes when your sins are pointed out? If you do, he's calling you now. He's calling you to come home. To come to the Savior. That merciful Savior is sweetly and gently pleading with you to come home. Maybe he's needling your heart right now, and you, you know it. They haven't found out yet, but they could find out. He's inviting you to... Bring it to light now and come to Christ and confess your sins. If you confess your sins, the Bible says he will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How could a man like Peter be saved? Well, a man like Peter could be saved because he is a merciful Savior just like you and I do. Just like you and I do. If God is pointing out your sins right now, He's doing it because he's calling you to come home and come to the love of God and experience the power of Christ. Won't you come home, sinner? Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you experience his love? Won't you live in the light and leave the darkness? Sinner, come home. Be forgiven. Come to this tender Savior and know the power of his redeeming love.